A randomized study conducted in Thailand compared the drug omeprazole, known by its brand name Prilosec OTC, to the spiced turmeric for their effectiveness to treat indigestion. According to researchers, both treatments worked equally well, which suggested to study authors that turmeric may be useful to treat the common ailment. This is Pulse Check. I'm Catherine Ellen Foley. The Biden administration yesterday announced a new wave of interagency cancer moonshot initiatives geared toward reducing the cancer death rate by half over the next 25 years. Included in the plans is $240 million earmarked for ARPA-H to develop new tools for detecting and treating cancer and $15 million to bolster the government's smoking cessation resources, particularly among underserved groups like American Indian, Alaska Native, and Black communities. House GOP leaders are abandoning their efforts to pass a spending bill that controls funds for the Agricultural Department and the Food and Drug Administration following intra-party disagreements over whether the bill should contain language to ban male delivery of abortion pills nationwide. Typically, passage of such funding bills is not controversial, but the attempt to insert abortion policy sparked pushback from more than a dozen moderate Republicans. The Democrat-controlled Senate is moving forward with its own appropriations bill this week, which will likely be negotiated into the final combined spending bill. And nonprofit healthcare co-ops, a legacy of Obama's Affordable Care Act, largely considered to be failed attempts at increasing competition in healthcare markets, has produced three unlikely survivors. Paul Demko is here to tell us about why these co-ops thrived when so many others failed and the lessons they can teach us about bolstering access to care. Thanks for having me. Excited to do it. So Obamacare originally funded 24 nonprofit health insurance co-ops to increase competition, but a lot of those failed within four years. Can you give us a quick backstory on Obamacare and why so many co-ops weren't able to survive? They really were set up for failure. I mean, this was a program that really had no political support. Democrats hated it because it wasn't a public option. Republicans hated it because they thought it was a ill-advised intervention in the private sector. So it was sort of put out there with no real supporters. The funding for it from the outset was slashed from $6 billion down to $2.4 billion, and it was turned from grants into loans. So they were already operating with you know, probably not enough cash to really survive. But then the even bigger blow, there were sort of two waves of failures. Some of the co-ops kind of collapsed right out of the gate. They just got it wrong. They got the pricing wrong and revenues didn't keep up with costs and they were always going to die. But then there was a second wave after the federal government made it clear that they were only going to pay out 12.6% of what was owed to insurers for risk corridors payments. And the risk corridors payments program was a three-year program that was sort of supposed to stabilize the markets during the early chaotic years of the ACA exchanges. And it ended up being basically a $12 billion shortfall that insurers faced. And ultimately, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that they were entitled to that money. But in the meantime, many of the co-ops just could not survive. They were already on shaky financial ground, and that really put a lot of them under. And so ultimately, 21 out of the 24 just collapsed in red ink. But we have these three remaining co-ops, Mountain Health, Community Health Options, and Common Ground Healthcare Cooperative. What allowed those to succeed? 
Yeah, this is what I discovered through my reporting that I found really fascinating, and that's that it really took extraordinary circumstances for these three plans to survive, and they each endured sort of near-death experiences, and only with really kind of extraordinary assistance were they able to stay afloat. So like, for example, you had Mountain Health, which does business in Idaho, Montana, and Wyoming, was able to secure an $8 million surplus note, essentially a loan from St. Luke's health system in Boise to help them stay afloat and keep the regulators off their back because they were at risk of not meeting risk-based capital requirements. In the situation of Common Ground Healthcare Cooperative in Wisconsin, they were able to sell off their future risk corridors payments. So basically say, okay, you're entitled to these risk corridors payments if they ever come through, they sold that off for $30 million to help them stay afloat. And even though that ended up ultimately hurting them, meaning they got less money in the long run, it allowed them to survive And back in 2016, where they were in an economically perilous condition. So really, these three plans, it took really extraordinary circumstances for them to be able to still be alive today. Do you think that potential rule changes could help health insurance companies or or co-ops compete with some of the big national players in the Obamacare marketplaces? There were a lot of weird rules that the co-ops had to deal with that didn't apply to other insurers and that made their lives even more difficult than they were going to be. For example, they weren't allowed to use their federal grant dollars for marketing expenses, which you're a startup insurer that nobody's heard of. How are you going to get customers? So, you know, that was one. But I think the biggest one that hurt the co-ops was they were largely prohibited from going after large group business. So going after large employer business. And that's the most stable book of business when you're talking about health insurance. So they were stuck with just the small group and individual market, which is really volatile really difficult, and you can't cushion it. You know, if you're Aetna, one of the big insurers, you can kind of cushion that volatile individual small group business with your large group business. And they largely were blocked from doing that. So I think that was the biggest rule that really hamstrung the co-ops. Got it. I'm just wondering, like, what's next? What can we take from these co-ops experiences that might inform policies around public health option plans if pursued at state or national levels? Yeah, I mean, I think a couple things. One is insurance is really hard. It's not just the co-ops that have died. If you look at some of the other for-profit insurers like Bright Health and Friday Health and Oscar, they're either defunct or have scaled way back or have lost massive amounts of money. So it's really, really hard. And if the government's going to get into the insurance business, they need to go into that with eyes wide open. And it's very, very, very capital intensive. It's very expensive. You got to have enough money for the insurer to you know, navigate the ups and downs and figure out the risks of the marketplace and get to a financially stable place. And that's really hard to do. And if policymakers are going to go down that path, they really need to to do it in a smarter way than they did with the co-ops, where it just sort of seemed like a political gesture to placate everyone and get enough votes for passage rather than a smart policy plan to make these nonprofit health plans prosper and survive. Well, thank you so much for that really astute analysis and for sharing your reporting with us, Paul. No problem. Thanks for having me on. And that's our show. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Afra Abdullah is our producer. 
Annie Reese and Alex Keeney are our senior producers. Our healthcare team editors are Eli Reyes, Dan Goldberg, Barbara Van Tyne, Beth Belton, and Sean Zeller. I'm Catherine Ellen Foley. Subscribe and follow Pulse Check for a new episode every day. And subscribe to our newsletters where you can read this reporting. Pulse, Future Pulse, and Prescription Pulse. Thanks for listening.